Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems, too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, you guys, once again, this episode brought to you by our friends at VeloJerseys.com. History is Velo. Velo is now commitment to design and producing the finest cycling clothing you can ride, climb, and excel in style. Retro jerseys. Oh, my God, I got a Chilo. C-I-L-O. I don't Is that right? I'm assuming that's right. I'm looking at nobody to help me pronounce that word correctly. Jersey. I got that one the other day, and it was really, really God, you guys, they're so comfortable. And I'm not just kissing ass here. I honestly am wearing these kits. Um, I might be in rule violation, but I don't think so. If the team doesn't exist anymore, you can wear the jerseys. But honestly, who gives a shit? If you honestly loved these teams when you were younger, wear the jerseys. They're really cool, and they're really nice, and they re- fit really well. In fact, I ordered myself two pair of black shorts from VeloJerseys.com because I, I want the to look halfway decent you can't have you know an, a, a specific jersey and then different colored shorts on it it just doesn't work so you got to go that whole retro look and i got some really nice bib shorts they make great stuff over there go over to velojerseys.com check out what they've got to offer and in the coupon code area you type in patrick filler not pack filler patrick filler you get 15 percent off your purchase this is my call to action Get over there. Buy a jersey from those guys. They're really nice stuff, and they're really nice guys, and they're funny as hell. So thanks to Velo Jerseys for being a supporter of the show once again. Now let's get to the show. on my headphone cord. I was clearly not prepared for this. Uh, There we go. I had my microphone stand on the headphone cord along with my chair was on the headphone cord. Just a mess. Hey everybody. Welcome to the only podcast proud enough to admit when its toast is not training. That's right. I'm Pat Bulger. Been pretty much off the bike for the past three weeks. Not good. Not fucking good. Life has completely gotten in the way, you guys. I don't know what the hell I'm going to do. But I think I think the schedule's finally getting open. I know you don't care because you're doing your own training and things are probably working great for you, but... Again, this is why people have podcasts, so they can just vent their own personal problems to nobody in particular. The other job's been taking up so much time, so much time. But I'm, in fact, I'm starting to get a little nervous. You know, I know August is a long time away. For those of you new to the show, you know, I got selected to Leadville this year. But it takes a lot of training to get ready for something like that. And I'm nervous. 
I'm really fucking nervous. Oh, man. Hopefully I'll get my shit together and get out there and start actually doing something. And it doesn't help that we're just right in the middle of, of rainy season here in the Pacific Northwest. So it's really... It, it's hard to get motivated to go out and ride my bike. <laughs> I know. First world problems, right? I think I need to find some warm-up events to train for or something like that. Some sort of an intermediate goal that's not just this gigantic beast on the horizon, you know, that's so far away. It's like, no, nah, I'll, I'll get to it. I'll be fine. I got plenty of time. No, I've got to find some events beforehand to keep me motivated and keep it going. Announcing season, however, is here. Messing that up. Did a triathlon. Announced a triathlon last weekend. Old classic one here in Spokane. Watching all these fit people. And I'm sitting on a bench with a microphone. For those of you fans of the show for a long time, the great Mark Hodgson was with me. It's good to talk to Mark. I haven't talked to him in a while. Other than like email and text and things like that. But, uh. Well, the season's here. We're both busy, busy like heck, you know, getting getting ready for that kind of stuff, maintaining our other jobs and our families. So, I don't know. He's doing he's doing a, a half iron distance triathlon here in June, in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Guess you go out there and watch him. I'm gonna go out there and watch him. I'll be at the 24 hours round the clock event this weekend. Classic event here in. The great inland Northwest been going on for years. In fact, one year it was a national championship back when the 24 hours uh, format was kind of in its boom. I miss those types of events. It's a fun event. People are pretty laid back. Everybody having a good time. Drinking beer after the race. Hell, some are drinking during. I still think those types of races are where cycling's headed. I don't know if the traditional format of road and mountain racing, I don't know where that's going to go. I, and, you know, you've heard me talk. I was talking to Gary Fisher last week about some of those things and where the sport's headed. I don't know if traditional racing is going to be that that source. You see how Fondos are blowing up on the road. You see how, uh, you know, some of these events like this, this mountain bike race, you know, Leadville is is an example of that. Where you're racing against yourself, you're racing against the course, and you can also race against other people. I keep thinking of traditional road riding, road racing. You get dropped, that's it, your day's over. Hell, in a crit, you probably get pulled. How many people are going to want to jump into an activity like that? I know, the purist in me is saying, well, that's what it is, that's, that's, that's cycling. But I don't know. I don't know. I think I think somebody's re- needing to reinvent this wheel and this concept. And I don't know. I don't want Fondos to be the f- true future of the sport. But you know, when I was at that triathlon last weekend, that type of event, everybody's competitive. Everybody's competing against themselves, against the course, against uh, you know, trying to get there in a specific time, trying to finish. And then we've got some of the elite who are competing against each other. And you've got the age groups who are competing against each other. It doesn't matter where you finish. It's going to be an interesting change to see where that all goes. I don't know. What do you guys think? Email me. Let me know where you think the sport's going. And some of you guys, especially the purest roadies out there, are going to say, oh, fuck Fondos. You know, they're bullshit, man. I... I'm not going to disagree with you, but what do you think the remedy is? Especially road, man. It's just a lot of middle-aged white guys doing road. And how's the sustainability of that going to work? I don't know. At least it isn't a color run. I'm sorry. If you think a color run is a worthwhile event, you are wrong. I think color runs represent everything wrong with the human race. (laughs) Sure, it's a great circus event, but it's not an athletic event where you're running around people throwing powdered color at you. You know they're going to find out eventually that that's some sort of a cancer-causing agent. 
God, I had never smoked a day in his life. I can't believe, you know, when, when he got lung cancer. All he did was, he was athletic. He was out there doing every color run every year. Coughing up rainbows. I will say this now on the podcast. I, my hand is in the air. I will never do a color run. Ever. I don't care if it's for the greatest cause in the world. I'll donate money to, I'll donate entry fee money and more, but I will not do a color run. If somebody convince me, can convince me why those events are worthwhile other than just skipping around and playing and having a la-di-da time, I'm biased. I got to get that out. You guys, today was a good day. Today was a very good day. It was crappy rainy, but um, the Bulger family family proudly bought home, brought home a new addition. That's right. You can congratulate me. Bouncing baby new Shrek Superfly 6. <laughs> Another bike in the house. This one's for my kid, my 17-year-old. I think that makes 18 bikes in the house now. I, I, I was joking with my son on the way home from picking it up that we might have more bikes in this house than the shop we purchased it from has on the floor. I had to promise my wife I would uh, sell a couple bikes if we could, if we bought this one. I might have a problem because I don't really want to. I don't. That made me... Well, okay. The bikes that I was going to sell or am going to sell, I've got a, I've got a dual suspension, uh, specialized, older 26-incher, but it's all XTR. It's got a World Cup RockShock fork on it. It's a great bike. It's a really nice bike. And I, I, I probably should sell it. If anybody wants it, email me. <laughs> and I don't know how much I'd get for it. I don't even know if, you know, and that's the thing. I don't, I feel weird selling stuff like that. And the other bike I'm supposed to sell is my son's old mountain bike, which is a, a Trek Marlin. You know, it's, it's kind of heavy. It's, it's, it's very entry level. Um, he raced on it when he was younger and had a great time on it. I think it's an 18 inch, something like that. I can't sell that. I can't get anything for it. Might as well just give it away. Maybe I'll give it to cool water. Many of you listeners want have a, have a kid who wants a mountain bike, 18 incher. I think it's an 18 incher. I'll have to look. Trek Marlin, great shape. 29-inch wheels, kind of heavy, but still a good all-around aluminum bike. Email me. Let me know if you want it. I might just throw it to you. That's the kind of person I am. I'm a giving person, right? Whatever. So anyway, today's show, Allison Dunlap. Speaking of mountain bikes, quite possibly one of the nicest people to ever kick your ass. I had a great time talking to Allison and uh, she's honestly a genuinely really nice person. At times, I think scheduling the interview was almost as if I was the guest. She was so accommodating. I mean, I, she'd send me times of when she could do it. And I was like, God, none of those may work for me. I'll be in my trailer. And she worked around my schedule to help make it happen. Really cool to talk with her. And I hope you guys get, uh, get as much out of the interview as I did while speaking to her. So before we get to that, let's uh, let's thank a couple quick sponsors. One of them I've already mentioned, Cool Water Bikes. Big thanks to those guys. You've um, you know great great local shop here doing really great things. Their their philosophy is the shop to help troubled youth, and um, and they're doing that. And they they need your help. So if you got any old gear like a Trek Marlin, guess that's going down there. Um, drop it off to them. Coolwaterbikes.org. Get online, buy a shirt, buy buy something from them, show them some love, show them some support, make a tax deductible donation to CoolWaterBikes.org. Also, thanks to Man Can, Man Can, a brewery in your fridge. Drink beer, fucker. No, it's they're really good, really cool cans. Um, and you can yeah, like I said, you can pressurize your your craft beer from the the growler filler place 
and then bring it home and just have it ready to rock whenever you want it. Click on the link at packfiller.com to ManCan and go over there. Of course, I got to mention Bella Jerseys again because those guys are awesome to me. Subscribe to the podcast. You guys follow the show on social media, Twitter, Facebook, and shoot me an email at patrick at packfiller.com whenever the fancy strikes you. I don't even know what that meant. I'm rambling. Let's go to Allison Dunlap. Okay, everybody. Today's guest has accomplished so much on a bike, I would take up literally the entire interview using uh, listing her results. Some highlights here include world champion in 2001, World Cup champion in 2002, Pan Am gold in 99, and how about this? 14 national titles in cross-country, short track, cyclocross, and collegiate events. Not to mention she finished on the podium in all of the World Cup races in 2000 and 2002. There you go. Let's welcome to the show Allison Dunlap. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. <laughs> I usually like to do those introductions because, I, you know, I, I figure starting off with flattery is a good way to go. <laughs> yeah. Get a big smile on your face. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So as people on this show like to know, and what I like to do is I like to start with a little perspective and kind of get an idea of how you came into the sport of cycling. Now, I understand it came to fruition, according to my research, in your college years. Yes. It did. I went to Colorado College in Colorado Springs, and they were a big Division One powerhouse with women's soccer, and I played soccer all through high school, and I was a walk-on, so I hadn't been recruited, but, you know, I thought I was, I thought I was a pretty decent player, and, uh, yeah, I tried out for the team. I ended up getting cut, and oh. so aside from the fact that, you know, I was totally devastated that I <laughs> didn't make the team, um, then I was all panicked because I didn't have a sport to do anymore. And everybody talks about the freshman 15 and all this <laughs> weight that you gain because you have unlimited grazing opportunities in the dining hall. And so I'm like, oh, my God, I'm going to get totally fat and I'm not going to have anything to do. So I just saw a poster up for the cycling club. And it was literally like, well, I have a bike and I love to ride. So I'm just going to go and I'm just going to check it out. And I did. And there were 35 guys in the room. <laughs> and you know I'm a freshman. You know, don't forget I'm a freshman, and I'm I'm just totally wide-eyed and uh, into anything. And I was probably the only woman that came to the meeting, and all these guys had shaved legs. And so I was like, <laughs> sign me up. <laughs> <laughs> so now you said you had you did like riding. Did had you done anything competitively before that, or was it all just focused on soccer? It was all soccer, and then I had uh, I'd done a couple trips you know, week-long bike tour trips with the Girl Scouts. Okay. Um, and that was really, and I had a paper route. So that was my exposure <laughs> to cycling other than just being a kid. And, you know, everybody just loves to ride their bike when you're a kid. And so I remember watching Rebecca Twig yeah. in the Coors Classic in Wash Park in Denver and, and not knowing anything about cycling. And I think I watched it when I was in high school and just thought, wow, that's amazing. And, you know, that was my first and probably only bike race I ever saw until I got to college and then you know of course heard about the cycling team and collegiate racing and you know it was just like this completely new foreign sport and you know it just sounded so interesting so I tried it so what and it worked out pretty well yeah yeah thank thank god you know no offense to the soccer team but I'm, I'm glad you went through that heartache <laughs> did now it had to have yeah it obviously came pretty darn quickly. Uh, again, collegiate national by your senior year is is pretty darn quick. What what was all that all about? How did that come? How did it come so quickly to you? Especially road. You know, I think I think yes, I had a uh, I don't know, like genetic disposition to cycling or just to you know endurance aerobic events. Um, and I just had a very, very strong work ethic and kind of this mindset of like, you know, if I train as hard as I possibly can and, you know, I study up on nutrition and I do my weight training and I do all this stuff, I, I had the mindset of like, I'll be the best. Like, there's no one that's going to beat me if I do all this. If I do my homework and I, I do all the preparation, then I, you know, I was totally confident that. I would one day be at the top of the sport. And so it's just, 
I just work my ass off. I mean, <laughs> I, I work so hard at the sport and, you know, I wasn't this prodigy. I didn't, I got dropped in the first five races I did and got lapped, you know, as a cat four, yeah. <laughs> so, but it was so much fun. And I just thought, all right, if I do this differently, then, I, you know, then I'm going to make it with those girls. And, you know, I, one day this summer, I'm going to make it with those, those big cat four girls. Cause they're not, <laughs> you know, they're not that better than me. And, you know, it was just one little step at a time. And, you know, all of a sudden it's my senior year and, you know, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to win that national title if it's the last thing I do. Kind of thing. <laughs> well, okay. Um, I mean, I guess, you know, I guess what it comes down to is a competitive nature can apply to anything else. You know, I, I've known people like that. In fact, strangely enough, my son uh, just just ended his, his soccer career to a certain degree. And now, you know, where does that switch go to? And you know somebody with a really solid competitive nature will do that. That focus can switch and they'll find something and they'll go full bore at that. And then obviously that worked for you. Yeah. It, and I don't know where that came from. I mean, I think I've always been that way. Um, yeah. You know, I was a valedictorian of my high school and then in middle school, I remember there was some award given to students that got straight A's and for three quarters. Yeah. And I remember getting straight A's for the, <laughs> second, third, and fourth quarter, and I was so excited that I was going to get this big award, and what they didn't tell you in the fine print was that it had to be the first and second and third quarter, not the <laughs> second, third, and fourth, for whatever reason, and I was just crushed, and I remember I remember almost getting pissed that, like, I'd been cheated out of this, and I'd worked so hard, and, you know, I was going to show them, and, and then it just kind of lit a fire under me, <laughs> you know, I don't know, <laughs> I've just sort of always been that way. Well, yeah, and and your career on the road uh, was for quite some time, culminating in uh, the Olympics in Atlanta. Correct? Yeah, I went to the yeah the road race for Atlanta. Yeah. So, what changed your focus after Atlanta to riding off road? There was there were things in the works that slowly developed leading up to Atlanta. One was I fell in love with this mountain biker guy Uh-oh. from Breckenridge. And, you know, I went to his events. I And I I ended up with a, I had a really bad crash in 1995 and had a pretty bad head injury. And so I was, I couldn't race. So I was out of racing for the entire summer. And this was when I was dating uh, Greg, who's now my husband. Yeah. And so I just followed him around. I was I was kind of his groupie and went to all the mountain bike events and just thought it was about the coolest thing I'd ever seen. And, you know, I, I actually had a mountain bike and I had done a ton of riding in Moab with a lot of the kids from Colorado college. And so I was a pretty good mountain biker and, you know, following him around. And of course I'm just totally in lust with this guy and I'm like, Oh my God, this is the greatest thing in the world. So there was that kind of, you know, in the works. And then, there was a lot of politics with road racing yeah. back then. Um, there were there were not the opportunities for women to race in Europe on trade teams like they do now. So yeah. back then, the only racing for women in Europe was with your national team. And of course, the national team only has room for six riders. And so, you know, making a national team was just the be-all, end-all for women cycling. And so once you're on that team you know, you got to play the game and you got to go to the events and do the, you know, miserable trips to Europe. Otherwise you don't get selected for the world championships. And if you don't get to go to worlds then you never have a shot at making the Olympic team. And I, I, I played the game and, you know, I did it well and I raced a ton in Europe and I just, I started to get tired of it. And I was butting heads with the national team coach who was a woman from Holland and, she was a great manager, but a terrible coach. Yeah. And, you know, and, and I don't know, I just got tired of the lifestyle. It's lonely and it's hard and it's, you know, you're not staying in these really nice hotels like the men do. You're staying in youth hostels and you're wow. doing your laundry in the, the bathroom sink every night because there's no laundry facilities and then there's no air conditioning. So you're sleeping, you know, with no covers on, totally buck naked in this sweltering you know youth hostel room 
right on Main Street in some huge city in France, and you know the, you can't sleep, and then you got to get up and travel five hours to the start of the the day, and you know just the, the, it was just wearing on me, and I was like, you know, <laughs> I'm sick of this, and yeah. I thought after the Olympics I was going to retire and be done with it, but then. I met Greg and I saw that there's this other side of the sport and I thought, well, I'll just put the word out that I'm looking for a mountain bike team and if I get any offers, then I'll jump and I'll go to mountain biking and then at that point I said, well, if I don't, then I'll just keep road racing. Really? Because I didn't really know what what else, you know, what else I would do because I had gone straight into full-time cycling from college. So, yeah, so that's, that's kind of I had a couple of reasons that I switched over. And and the obviously the life when she switched over to off-road racing um a, a hell of a lot different. It's unbelievable that that you know living that life you were living you were saying living sleeping in those hostels and things like that. Um I can only imagine the wage was not enough that you actually had a place to live back in the states or if it was just kind of a setup where you were you know left your stuff at your folks house and that was about it. It was. I I lived with my mom it, during the summer months uh, right after college, and you know I hardly got. I, I made some prize money, maybe a couple thousand dollars yeah. in prize money, and then you know maybe a year or two post college, I was on a trade team and I got a small salary of I think three thousand dollars for the year, and then uh, you know you make a little more prize money, and it's just enough to eke out a, a living, and I. Then I moved into an apartment with a roommate from college and, you know, rent was fairly cheap and kind of, we were able to, you know, kind of make it. And so by my, by 96, when I made the Olympic team, my salary was a whopping $10,000. God, You know, I thought I was rolling in the dough. So describe the life change now switching to mountain racing and how did that all change? It was a midst of a gigantic time in for off-road racing. Yeah, I jumped over right at the right when the sport was at its height yeah. and everything was in mountain biking. The road scene was just dead for women and this was before Lance Armstrong came along yeah. and you know, the superheroes were all mountain bikers, both men and women. And big T V contracts and huge sponsors and you know, the team that I signed with G T bicycles was the biggest team in the world and their budget was 1.5 million, which, you know, for a pro road team in Europe, that's nothing, but for a mountain bike team, that was pretty phenomenal. And, uh, yeah, my salary. So with no, really no experience as a mountain biker, just my resume from my road. And then, you know, having all this potential (laughs) as a (laughs) development rider for mountain biking, you know, they signed me to a $30,000 contract right off the bat. Wow. And, you know, that was, for me, that was just incredible. And, <laughs> you know, the media and the press and the the kind of the fame, I guess you could say, within cycling was huge. You know, within months of becoming a mountain biker, you know, it was, it was wonderful. And it was just, it's the way it should be. And, yeah. you know, unfortunately, it, it fell apart too. But <laughs> it yeah. was great for a couple of years. Yeah, well, and just before we get to the falling apart, you again appeared to figure things out pretty darn quickly. Uh, win in your fourth World Cup race in, in Budapest, if I'm not mistaken. To be able to figure that out that quickly, was that was there a learning curve, or was it because you had spent so much time off-road and that time in Moab that it was just a natural progression? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat 
all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. There was, there was definitely a learning curve because I had, I had good technical skills, but I had to learn how to ride all that stuff at speed and with a heart rate that was, you know, VO2 through the roof, yeah. um, you know, super high respiration, you know, you can hardly see straight because you're riding so hard. And then you have to negotiate some, you know, crazy technical descent um, that you, you like, you're convinced that if you don't make it, you're going to die. <laughs> uh, so, you know, and then the, the starts of mountain bike racing are, are very different than road racing. Road racing starts off and, you know, it's like social social time for about yeah. 15 or 20 minutes and everybody's catching up on what's going on in your life, how are the kids, you know, what have you been up to? And mountain bike racing, you get called to the line and you, you stand there for 15 minutes and then the gun goes off and you're at anaerobic hell in 30 seconds and then it never lets up. And that took a while and I had phenomenal endurance and fitness from the road and so I had pretty decent skills. So it didn't take long before I started to do well, but I was very inconsistent. Uh, so I would have an amazing race in Europe and get on the podium of the World Cup for a top five, and then I'd go home and do the Norba Nationals, and I would get 15th, you know, and just burst into tears at the finish line really? because, you know, I couldn't figure out what, you know, what in the heck just went wrong. And it's just your body kind of getting used to that style of racing, and it took... It took probably a good two years before I was consistently winning and on the podium and always a contender and always a threat. And, you know, and then, then your body adjusts and you get it kind of figured out. Well, a lot of people think it's the technical elements that hits the roadie first when you come over to mountain bike racing. Um, but you're saying it's, it's also the fitness and the style. Is it, would you equate it to similar to that of a, for those people who don't understand, uh, to that of a criterium where we're, you know, again, with a crit, you're, you're standing there waiting for all the announcements and all of a sudden, bam, it's right out of the gate. Yeah, it's, it's similar to a, a crit, um, except in a crit, you still get to coast. Like you're yeah, still, true. you sprint, you sprint, you go through the turn, you're coasting for two, yeah. three seconds at the most. And then, you know, it goes single file and then some, and then it sits up and then it kind of balloons out across the road and all of a sudden you get a 10 or 20 second recovery. Yeah. And so it's, it's very, you know, full on and then you get a rest, full on and you get a rest. Whereas mountain bike racing is full on and then you have these descents, but the descents are technical and it's not, you're not really recovering. You're, you know, it's very abusive. You're, it's very pounding, um, you know, mentally, it's just exhausting yeah. and so stressful if the descent or the or the course is, you know, not your favorite course or extremely challenging, or then you get the weather and, yeah. you know, you don't race road bikes in the mud. Well, you know, mountain bike racing in the mud is just ridiculous. And hell, so yeah. you add all these things into the race. And so, yeah, it's two hours of just total body abuse, you know, physically, mentally, emotionally, and <laughs> I remember the first year, I think I finished Sea Otter, and back then the course was longer, and it was, I think it took me three plus hours, and I remember wow. just getting done and thinking that was the absolute hardest race I'd ever done in my life, and then three or four years later, you would, I would look at Sea Otter as like, oh, that's such a fun race, and oh, it's <laughs> such a great course because it's so smooth, and it's not very technical, and it's really fast, and you get done with it, and you know, after my years of adjustment it was it was just one of the easiest races on the schedule because it just wasn't so physically demanding and abusive as you know some of the world cups so it's just funny how your perspective changes yeah and and the sport has changed quite a bit too uh, we, you talked about we talked about how kind of that mountain bike that boom kind of faded away it subsided at least a little bit but it seemed to have live, lived on um do you what do you equate that that decline for what do you, any reasons for that why that might have happened oh i it's two words lance armstrong <laughs> <laughs> um his his you know rise his whole cancer recovery and the whole winning the tour de france and and all of that just swept everything and everybody off their feet. And 
the money just disappeared from mountain biking and went straight to the road and to pro men's road racing. And the women were still an afterthought, but the sport as a whole went through this complete boom because of the Lance phenomenon. And, you know, I remember specifically Giro Helmets, which had yeah. sponsored the Luna women's pro team from the beginning. At one point they said, you know, look, we have a budget and we we only have this kind of budget and we're actually going to, we're going to give it all to Lance this year and wow. we can't sponsor the Luna team. You know, and we're the number one team in the world for women's mountain biking, but it was Lance and, and then once the TV disappears and the interest starts to drop, you know, it's just the snowball effect. And we got to a point where there was no prize money at all of the national races. We just, we had nothing. And the World Cups were down to, you don't even know what the World Cups were giving. If anything, there may have been a year where the World Cups didn't have prize money either. Oh, my God. Um, it, was, it was pretty bad. Um, and now it's it's way better than it it was at the low point, um, you know, but it still hasn't come back to where it was in like 97, 98. I mean, Furtado was pulling in a salary of just her salary alone in 97 was $225,000 oh from GT. <laughs> and Allison Sider was making almost the same for, you know, riding for Volvo Cannondale. Yeah. And, and then the bonuses were just, you know, like for every World Cup that you won, the bonus from GT was ten thousand wow. dollars, and then the prize money from the UCI for winning the World Cup was thirty seven hundred, and then you got bonuses from sponsors like Oakley and uh, Nike, and you know that it was just there was so much money in the sport. It was, you know, when they said Julie was a millionaire, she truly was. Like she made so much money because she won everything. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, and I just you know, and I don't know, I don't know what girls make now for the mountain bike, but um, it's just you know nobody makes that kind of money. Where do you see it headed in terms of the development of the sport? Is it is it? I I see some growth in in my experience in mountain bike racing. I do see some some return of interest back to it. Maybe it's the fallout from Lance, and we're back the other way. There is some of that. Um, I think people look at mountain biking as being more pure and yeah. not as tainted because there wasn't, there isn't the money in the sport like there is on the roadside. And, you know, all of our heroes on the road on the men's side have all, you know, yeah. come forward that they all were doping. And we haven't gotten that from the pro men mountain bike side for the U S now Europe, it's different, but, um, so sure, there's there's a renewed interest in mountain biking. However, I think cross country Olympic distance mountain bike racing is slowly dying. I, just, oh. I think the interest is is disappearing. And in Europe, I think it's phenomenal. But I think in the U.S., it's just not exciting. And people are more interested in racing in enduros and you know these national endurance series events. And so. Yeah. You know, you're getting 23 women, pro women, are showing up to the start line for, you know, one of the big pro XCT events, one of the big national races of the season. And you're getting 23 pro women. Wow. And, I mean, that's pathetic. Is, is, it, is it? And I don't Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to figure that out. And I've talked to some other um, female athletes in terms of what's happening to women's cycling and this this comparison and the situation that it's constantly getting caught up in. Um, wow. I didn't know it was that low in numbers showing up at some of these big races. You know, and it's not all of them, you know, sea otter yeah. is always the anomaly. You know, sea otter gets 65, 70 women that come race. Um, but that's probably the only one. And wow. then, you know, interestingly enough, the races that do really well, are the non-USA cycling sanctioned events and the, re the events that are not, quote, you know, these Olympic distance, um, you know, UCI sanctioned races. And the two big ones are uh, Iceman and Schwamigan. Oh, okay. And, you know, and the women are making five or $6,000 for first place. And, wow. you, you know, you have 5,000 competitors and it's phenomenal. But, 
that's not a race that does anything for you for the Olympics. And so all the races that are, you know, designed to make the Olympic team for the U.S. are just, you know, they're there, but I don't know. I don't know where the sport is headed as far as that elite side. Um, It's it's interesting. I I don't know. I mean, it's, it's... No, I mean, it's it's cycling across the board to me seems to be going through this kind of a a growing pain where a lot of the the roadside is turning into this fondos and um, endurance types of events and mountain biking is turning into and I, I apologize, I don't know the events you spoke of. So that's how far out of the loop I might be. But um, these non-sanctioned events, I keep I kept thinking Breck Epic popped into my head and those type of events. Mm-hmm. Um, are we are we trying to still push the same formula that we've been using and hoping it sticks and and continued success, or does there need to be a rethink? I don't know because you know I'm not racing and yeah. so I haven't seen it firsthand. But you know the the sport has changed dramatically in Europe. Um, <clears throat> the courses all in Europe are very very contrived. They're very a lot of them are man made. Um, you know, you've got jumps and you've got gap jumps and you've got these man-made rock gardens and laps are very, very short and you're doing seven to 10 laps, um, because it's really exciting for the spectators and it just has changed, uh, how the sport is run and, and the skill set now that you need to be a world cup mountain bike racer is so different from when I did it. You know, I didn't have to learn how to do a gap jump. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And these girls are doing these jumps. I mean, you should see the course at Rio for the Olympics. It's it's unbelievable. I mean, I don't think I could ride that Olympic course even with my full suspension bike and a dropper seat post. Really? And they're doing it on hardtails with their seat up their butt. And it's so it's really different. And wow. in the US, you know, I don't know how much the courses have become like they are in Europe. There's always this uh, resistance in the U.S. to, you know, we want to stick to our roots and we want to have courses that are like mountain biking should be. And, uh, you know, some are like that and some are not. And it's, uh, you know, I don't know which ones do better and which ones are struggling. But, uh, you know, there's very little TV and that's a big one. Oh, yeah. Yeah. In fact, Um, I was talking to my family last night. We were watching the Tour of California stage. And I, I looked at my wife and I said, do you remember when we used to be able to watch mountain biking on TV and how awesome that was? And and we both mm-hmm. reminisced about how much fun it used to be. Yeah. And, you know, granted, you can watch all the World Cups are on not not like public TV, but you can watch yeah. them on the Internet. Yeah. So, you know, that is great. Um, the Pro XCT, I don't know if they're on TV this year or not, but they... Showware did an awful lot and brought in a ton of money in the last couple of years, and and they did have TV where you could see the events broadcast, um, and that has just been recent. You know, that's just been in the last couple of years, and that's tremendous. I mean, that's what the sport needs, and that's the only way you're going to get big money sponsors yeah. is when you have the TV involved. Yeah. So uh, to get away from some of the depression, let's switch gears a little bit. You are a level one uh, certified coach out there, um, I guess, given back to in that sense. What kind of, uh, what's your coaching style like and what kind of riders do you work with on, on your average rider, I guess we could say? So, so I just have a coaching business on my own. I don't work with anybody and yeah. I have all different levels of athletes. Um, I have a couple pro mountain bikers <coughs> and I have a couple, a few people doing road stuff, but I think it's mostly mountain bike. And, you know, I have a gentleman who's 74 years old and hasn't ridden a bike for 10 years. Wow. And he's training for a seven day, uh, tour in California in September, you know, so I'm having to write training for him, but I'm also having to, you know, like talk about well how do you unclip from your clipless pedals and you know i keep tipping over and you know how do you reach down and grab a water bottle when when you're pedaling you know some really basic stuff you know on up to you know i work with a couple pro elite pro riders and you know we're talking 
you know, power numbers and, you know, how do we uh, peak for, you know, this race and that race and that race and that race and, um, and everything in between. And so I really enjoy, you know, I enjoy the personal side of coaching and, um, I really believe in the art of coaching, which is kind of the idea that, you know, numbers are great and power meters are great and heart rate and all that. But the bottom line is there is, there is more to bike racing than just pure scientific data. And that's what I love about it is that there's things that are unexplainable and there's things that happen in a bike race that don't make sense. And for whatever reason, you know, your race turns out this way versus that way. Yeah. And, you know, based on what you did with training or your warm up or your race prep, it shouldn't have done that. And yet it did. And, um, you know, and I love that. And a lot of athletes struggle with that and they want, you know, if I, if I am at 4.5 watts per kilogram, <laughs> then, then I'm going to win. Right. Yeah. And, you know, you're putting, you're racing, you're doing 300 watts at threshold. Oh my gosh. You know, you're going to be the best female out there. And that's not true. Yeah. Um, you know, there's just so much more that goes into training and racing and that's what I love. Yeah. God, that makes me a coach and yeah. That That makes me so happy to hear because I know of a lot of people who are constantly just looking at numbers, 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 numbers. And I, I talked to a lot of people about, well, what is, what is your aerobic threshold feel like? If I took away those numbers, um, what would it feel like to you? And can you, when do you know you can go harder or not? And I just find we almost become glued to this screen reading what information comes back. And sometimes, you know, you need to coach the fact that, yeah, things suck right now, but I bet you can still go harder. I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I just pine for the romantic days. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I agree. And, you know, having been an athlete and, you know, for 18 years, I raced with just a heart rate monitor and I trained with heart rate yeah. and, you know, and I did really well. And so it's really easy for me to not get so wrapped up in all these numbers and power charts and training stress scores, because I know that there's more to an athlete than those numbers. Now on the other side of the spectrum, uh, not necessarily the other side of the spectrum, because it sounds like you're, you're surrounding your life with a bike. There's a touring company involved. Oh, well, I have these adventure camps. Yeah. Like you, uh, not really touring, but it's okay. mountain bike skills clinic. Oh, that I okay. Run. And I used to do, I used to do week long camps in Moab, Utah. Yeah. Um, but I, I stopped doing those as of this year. Um, mostly because I have a five and a half year old and the logistics are just, <laughs> they're just overwhelming. Well, that, um, that yeah. was one of the things I was going to ask is, is Emmett basically destined, does he have a bike already at five and a half? And is this kid destined to never see hair on his legs? Yeah. <laughs> He, he's been pedaling since he was two and a half and yeah, he has a full blown mountain bike now and he loves it and he's a little shredder, but, uh, you know, ironically, I, I hope he doesn't ever get into racing Really, <laughs> as a pair, as a parent, yeah. I think it's, it would be so stressful to watch your kid, you know, do these scary mountain bike courses. <laughs> and I don't know the the kids that get into racing at a young age and do really well and, you know, they love it and they're, you know, all they want to do is ride their bike and race. And I think, you know, that's great. But then most of those kids, when they get to high school or maybe early college, realize that there's a lot more out there than just cycling. And most of them quit and they don't make the transition into U23 and elite. They just, they get burned out and they're like, well, I'm going to try something else. And they never come back to the sport. And that would just break my heart. So I would just, I just want him to love to ride and I would rather him not race. And I would just, you know, my dream is to go out on a big five hour epic ride with him in Moab, like go do the whole enchilada with him someday and just have a ball. (laughs) Actually, that's pretty cool. You know, and it's also, like you say, it's about training um, cyclists, not necessarily elite cyclists. I, you know, I don't know if I necessarily have a term for the difference between the two. But is there a time in your life where 
you know, I guess like you could say with soccer, you, with, with soccer ended for you, you found something. Yeah, hopefully the kid can find something and, and even continue to have the bike be a part of his life. Yeah, I mean, he can do whatever he wants. Yeah. But, you know, I just hope that he always loves to ride because that's such a wonderful thing for kids to have, you know, that sense of independence and freedom and excitement from riding a bike. Um, and we all have these amazing memories of riding our bikes and, yeah. you know, cruising around the neighborhood, you know, without mom and dad. And <laughs> I mean, that's just such a great, it's something you'll never forget. And so I hope he, I always hope he loves his bike, you know, and whether that's riding with me and his dad or not riding with us, you know, I, I hope it doesn't, go that direction but we'll see <laughs> <laughs> hey um before we we start to wrap things up it is being an olympic year you dealing with selection committee for the you were involved in that um how are we doing in the u.s and how's our readiness in terms of what you think the state of uh, american mountain biking is you know we have some girls that have done really well in europe um you know obviously georgia gould yeah you know, an Olympic medalist in London. And we've had a couple girls get medals at the world championships. And, you know, and then we have Chloe who is now, you know, the top uh, female right now in the world cup standings for the U S. And so it's, it's going to be a dogfight, and I love it. And nobody is guaranteed a spot. And I don't think any of the women, you know, there's not one of them that is just, you know, hands down way better than everyone else. I mean, it it is really going to be a tight battle and it all comes down to the world cup. And that's, I mean, that's where the selection is coming from. Um, and so, and they all know it. And so they're, they're peaking for those big events and, you know, whoever has the best accumulative ranking from, you know, the world cups up to a certain date, uh, you know, they're going to go and they will have earned it for sure. Is that what? What do you think of that system? I mean, I don't know if I want to, you know, have you spill any guts, but to have to peak for a series of races rather than okay, I'm on the Olympic team now, I have to peak for that race. I mean, is is that an effective system? It, it is. With mountain biking, there's so many variables that come into play yeah. in a one day race. And granted, the Olympics, you know, yes, it's a one day event, but to pick your Olympic team from one event is is almost unfair because you know there's mechanicals there's crashes there's injuries you know stuff that yes that happens in a road race as well but there's a higher probability in a mountain bike race um and then you're done and so with mountain biking it's it's unlike road racing mountain biking the girls or the guys that win you know, there's no, you're not, you're not getting a lead out from your teammate. You're not, you don't have seven other people working for you and setting you up for the sprint. And when you win a race or you are the best placed American in a world cup, you earned it. And if after four events, you have the highest score, that is a direct reflection of who's the best rider. Whereas on the road, you know, when you have all these teammates and you have so many ways that you can win a race I and mean, you can win a race on the road and not stick your nose in the wind a single minute of the entire day. Yeah. And you have teammates getting bottles for you and doing absolutely everything for you. And then you just have to, you know, win the sprint. And, and then you look, you're looked at as this great, you know, great cyclist that, Oh, you know, we should send you to the Olympics because you won this one day event. Well, you know, that's not necessarily, they're not necessarily the best rider. Yeah. So it's different. And, you know, road is also doing the same thing. It's not a one day winner take all Olympic trial. It's, you know, it's a whole slew of races and points and coach's choice. And yeah, it's just all very messy. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, no, I can only imagine. I just like sitting back and watching it all happen. So I'm glad I'm not in on that selection process. So, you know, my, I guess before, you know, again, I'm finishing out here. Um, I got to tell you, in all my years of watching you race, 
Um, you mentioned earlier in the interview that you you would come across the line and be crying and have a horrible day or something like that. But I, I don't know if I'm the only person, if I just had blinders on, but I never saw that. Your disposition always seemed to be so damn positive. <laughs> is, is it your state of mind or are you just an incredible actor when the rest of us are looking? Yeah. You always have. Well, of course, you never want to, anybody to see you at your your low point, and yeah. so yeah. I mean, there was a couple races where I just disappeared, and I just I literally just rode my bike into the woods, and I remember <laughs> you know jumping off my bike and and like walking back into the trees and just sitting at the base of this tree in a bunch of bushes and just sobbing uh, because I knew no one would hear me or see me, and I figured I wouldn't be reported missing you know if i you know i had maybe half an hour before people would start to wonder where the hell i was and you get it all out and you then you you know you kind of suck it up and you go back to the truck and you put on a good face and sign autographs and you talk to everybody and you know then you sit down with your coach that night and you pick apart what happened and you try and figure out you know why it was such a horrible day and you know and then you just you're just hell bent on like, I'm never going to do that again. I'm never going to, I don't want to ever feel that awful. And you know, it happens again, of course. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. And you know, you're, you gotta be a professional. And a lot of times when you have those days, you cross the finish line and you know, after you start winning and then you have a terrible day, everybody's like, you know what happened? And you have all these media and everybody's right there in your face and you've got to keep it together and be professional and say the right things. And, you know, you can't fall apart and that can be really tough. And then sure, when you're all done and you go home back to your hotel, then you fall apart (laughs) (laughs) and it happens all the time. Like you just, you know, athletes are really good at hiding it. Well, I I hope, I hope that's a part of your coaching regimen because sometimes that isn't a part (laughs) of it. And, and I guess there are some who have mastered it more than others. (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah, and there's not a single athlete out there that has not had a meltdown and fallen apart after a challenging day. Um, yeah, you just, it's just it's just part of the sport, and unfortunately, you have more of those days than you do when you cross the finish line and it's been the greatest day of your life and you have won the big race. You know, those days happen once or twice in a season. And the other days happen all the time. Yeah. This coming from the person who, as I said, finished on the podium in all of the World Cup races in 2000 and 2002. So, come on. <laughs> <laughs> you, had more, you had a lot of good days those years. Yeah, it, it, was, a, it was a great career. Yeah. I loved it. Well, what keeps you going these days? Well, now I have a five and a half year old. And so being a parent and being a mom is just, uh, you know, I never, they tell you it's the most incredible thing you'll ever do. And you're like, yeah, whatever. You know, I've done some really (laughs) cool things and how, you know, how hard can this be? You know, I was a bike racer and I traveled all around the world and blah, blah, blah. And, and then you have a child and you realize that they're all right. And all those things and all those things people tell you are, are right. And you're just like, damn it. And yeah. It's, you know, now everything I did before seems so easy and so, so selfish. You know, like being a bike racer, I realize now is incredibly selfish and it was great. It was a it great lifestyle, be. but now I'm really happy to have somebody else in my life that is, you know, the most important thing. And, you know, I'm married and I'm, I'm a mom. And so that consumes every waking moment of my day. And then in the 1% of time that I get to myself is when I try and run my business and <laughs> do yeah. everything else. Wow. Well, Emmett's yeah, a lucky kid. And I'm not saying that just to kiss up. That's a, that's a pretty cool philosophy. <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty cool. I I love it. And but I have to say I have had more meltdowns in 5 years than I have ever had in my entire life, including <laughs> all the bike races. And yeah, it's it's flipping like the one of the hardest things. It is the hardest thing I've ever done. Oh. And it never you never get a break and it never lets up, but well, it's pretty. It's pretty incredible. Yeah, to take it for me, I mine mine so my one kid's 17 and I haven't gotten a break yet, so 
Oh, God. Yeah. I'm terrified of <laughs> when they go to high school. Oh, it, I'll have to call you back. Yeah, please do. Yeah, I'll, I'll leave a line open. So, <laughs> Well, Allison, thanks a lot for your time. I appreciate you and I had to kind of figure out some dates to make all this work, but I'm glad I finally got to touch base with you. Oh, no, I enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. And there you are, the great Allison Dunlap on the Pack Filler Podcast. And so comes to a close yet another episode. Thanks, you guys, for uh, listening. Thanks for your showing your support of the show and ranking us on iTunes. You have been, and I appreciate it. <laughs> we will catch you guys next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 